Cookbooks. How many mm. do you have? Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's a little embarrassing to say, but we have at least 150 cookbooks and <gasps> plus other you know, uh, genres of cookbooks. Enchanté. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that brings you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food here in France and around the world. They cook it, produce it, talk, write and photograph it. But above all, they love it. If you're a French foodie and love to collect kitchen things, then you will for sure have seen a copper moulds for today's topic, the canelet. This is one of those French classics that is simple, but it also needs some attention to detail because often it's the little things that matter, like the quality of the ingredients or, in fact, the vessel that they're cooked in. The Canelet is delicious to eat and a must for any visitor to France or lover of French food. Today on Fabulously Delicious, I'm chatting to someone that loves, I would say, French food as much as I do. In fact, after doing my research on Catherine, I'm inspired because basically I think she's a bigger French foodie than I am. I can't wait to chat all things Canelet and French food with Catherine Burns. Catherine, thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Hi, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be on your podcast. I'm a huge fan. Oh, merci beaucoup. Oh, merci. Julian. Before we talk all things Canelet, I want those that don't know you to get to know you and to get to know how fabulous you are. I know this because I've seen your Instagram and I'm very je- jealous of it because of all that amazing food and things that you post about, uh, French things, uh, French life and obviously food. And the name of your account, it's named after your favourite Paris street. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely, absolutely it is. So my Instagram account is called rue.dauphine.paris and I came up with that name because that is actually the street of the hotel which we always stay at. It's on. It's in the 6th on Rue Dauphine, so it's right just um, south of the Pont Neuf Bridge uh, on the left bank. And for us, it's a home away from home. We stay in a little boutique hotel and they just make us feel like family and it's it's just a fantastic little street i mean it's certainly not your most glamorous street compared to all the streets in paris but it's just quaint and cozy and centrally located and when i started my instagram i thought why not have it my favorite street of course well it's it's fabulous and it's a fabulous account Oh, thank you. Um, the Sixth is an amazing place. For me, the Sixth is really interesting because it's, to me, a bit touristy. Lots of hotels, lots of Americans mm-hmm. actually do stay there. And I feel that they do that because they have American love of France definitely comes with this attachment to things like Hemingway, for an example, or, you know, those Absolutely. amazing cafes that were in that area where mm-hmm. people used to go. But the thing was people used to do that, you know. they It was where Hemingway went and sat in a cafe and wrote because at that time when he was there, it wasn't a touristy place. It was where people from Paris would go to and actually be. So he was sitting amongst Parisians. So my question to you is, do you think that people, especially uh, Americans that are choosing to stay in the six, are they missing out on being a part of the real Paris like Hemingway was part of? Well, I do think so now in a sense. And when we first went to Paris, it was in 2011, and we just happened upon this hotel and the six, you know, 
stay anywhere in Paris. We just got really lucky on where we chose to initially stay. And back then in 2011, it really felt less touristy and more like a neighborhood. And we would go every year and we would notice that as, you know, as time went on, you know, some of the local shops would close and more touristy restaurants would open. And it, it has definitely changed in the last few years. Emily in Paris has been criticised, rightly or wrongly, I think, for its cliches um, in regards to both Americans and French. And now apparently I read in the news the Ukrainians. Oh, but <laughs> I don't know what that was about. I have to go. I haven't watched season two yet, so we'll have to see. Oh, you haven't. Oh, you must. It's fun. It's fun. But do you think that maybe we all secretly love those cliches about Paris and the French and, and even Americans in Paris? Well, I think we certainly do, and I know um, you know there's a, bit, a lot of controversy over the, the show, but um, but that's also what makes it fun because it's not really reality yet. Maybe it is just a tiny bit. <laughs> I know because it's, it's sort of when you are in Paris, it really is a bit of an escape from reality, really, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, and the cultures are just so different, and that's what I think fascinates us. What's your favorite? thing to do in Paris? Well, I would say there's actually two things. The first are the markets. You have to go to the outdoor markets. Um, and each little neighborhood has their own. And it's an experience like no other. They're, the food purveyors are incredible. The selection's outstanding. Um, I love watching people, you know, hurry over to their favorite um, vegetable stand or the, the fishmonger. And it's just, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. And it's also a great place to buy souvenirs to take home, which is wonderful. So that's, you definitely have to go to the food markets, the open air food markets. And the second thing that you must do when you are in Paris or really anywhere in France, you have to have um, breakfast at an outdoor cafe. It's just the, the best way to experience the city. And just, you know, to get to know the neighborhood you're staying in and see the locals, you know, start their day. It's just watch, just sit at a cafe for hours and just watch life go by. It's just, it's an experience that you have to, you have to do. <laughs> a lot of times when Americans go to Paris, you know, they have an agenda. They have to do this and this and this. And they don't just sit and experience and enjoy and we're also so used to the restaurants in America where they just want to turn the tables over where, you know, you're allotted only an hour and then they kick you out. So, so it's a really, it's a difference. It's a different mindset for, for us. And it's something that we definitely have to experience. And I think that when people come to Paris, they should really come without an agenda. And when we go, what we do is we, our, our schedule is pretty open and each day we pick a different arrondissement. And just spend the entire day wandering that little neighborhood, going to the museums, just really experiencing each little neighborhood. Your father had French, Italian, or has French, Italian and Swiss heritage, and your mother's uh, Puerto Rican. Was there any similarities? Because part of my ignorance, I know very little about Puerto Rican food. So I'm wondering, is there any similarities in cooking and food cultures between those sort of European cultures that I've met, the French, the Italian, the Swiss, and the Puerto Rican cultures that you experienced when you were growing up? Well, the food 
food is definitely very different, um, obviously. But they're similar in the sense that food is family. And that is the core value um, for each culture, the Italians and the Puerto Ricans. And everything is centered around the table, around in the kitchen. And family and food is the utmost importance. And so those are really what kind of connects the two cultures. Have you been to Puerto Rico then? You know, I have. I have one time. Uh, my family, yeah, my family took us, my father took us when I was in high school. So what's the food culture like there? Um, you know, it's 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 similar to, you know, European. They have a lot of um, fish and meats and they eat a lot of plantains and bananas. Um, you know, it's very family-based. Is there any particular culture that sort of influenced the food there? I think that Spain has been a big influence on um, on Puerto Rico, and I wouldn't say the food is spicy. It's just more flavorful. Flavorful mm. mm-hmm. sounds like somewhere I need to go. Yes, you definitely should put it on your itinerary. That leads me to my next question, which was: uh, if I was going there, or if someone that has never been there before is going there, what do you think that's the one thing that they should try? Well, definitely the pasteles if you can find them. Um, and then another popular dish is the arroz con gondules, which is a very simple rice with these little um, green beans. Uh, it's just fantastic. And then, of course, all the fruits. I remember my mother would uh, fondly rem- remember that, you know, they have, um, you know, just incredible papayas and just incredible bananas and just lots of fresh fruits from the island. So definitely eat <laughs> eat your way through the island you told me that you had two food heroes when you were growing up who were they well yes i have two food heroes and i actually have two mothers-in-laws yes you heard me correct i have two <laughs> mother-in-laws but i'm so fortunate because they're both absolutely wonderful wonderful women i really am lucky why were they your food heroes well my um my husband's stepmother, so my first mother-in-law, she is an amazing cook. She's just gifted in the kitchen, and she has the knack for creating these beautiful dinners and hosting dinner parties for 50 or more people without even breaking a sweat. It's really a gift she has. And the other thing that she's really instilled in me, is she taught me the importance of setting the tone and the mood in the kitchen with having fresh flowers in the kitchen, using your best china and real silver every day, setting you know the table with beautiful tablecloth and cloth napkins at every meal, just creating the, the ambiance of the meal and the kitchen and the home is so incredibly important to enjoying the meal. Was she like me, like... Did she spend a day cooking for that dinner party or maybe even a day and a half? Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, she was very organized. Yeah, very prepared. And she just had everything organized and she's amazing. I have got a bit of a complex at the moment because I saw this on Instagram somewhere and I can't remember where. I don't think it was your account, but it was somewhere. The question was, do you iron your table linens? Oh, that was probably mine. <laughs> that was yours. I thought I've never, I've never ironed my table linens. Am I doing something wrong? Um, it, would that have been something that she would do? Oh, 
gosh. Oh, heavens, yes. Are you kidding? They would not, they would never not be unironed. And they would be, of course, beautiful, real linen and just incredible. But just for the record, when I did post that, the lin- my linens were not ironed. <laughs> I thought so. I actually did notice that, yes. Um, and so then you're the other mother-in-law. Why was she your food hero? Well, my other, mother, my other mother-in-law is my husband's mother, and she is just brilliant in the kitchen. She attended Corn on Blue in Paris years ago. She had her own cooking school and uh, catering business in San Francisco. And she's the type of cook who can make a delicious meal when your cupboards look bare. She's really incredible. She's such an inspiration. And to top that all off, if you can even imagine that, she cooked with you were a child back in the day. So <gasps> wow. I mean, yeah. That is amazing. I was just going to say, I bet she had some great stories to tell having a cooking school, but that's a pretty good story in itself. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. She's an amazing woman. I'm really lucky. Did they know each other? Oh, yes, they do. Was there rivalry between them? No, not really. I mean, I think they get along very well and they respect each other and, um, yeah. I could imagine if they did a dinner party together, there would be, like, really high expectations. One's gone with Le Cordon Bleu and one is, like, this fabulous, oh, gosh. It could be great or it could be all, (laughs) No, it would be amazing. It would be the most incredible setting and the food would be amazing. And they're both incredibly charming, witty, intelligent women. It would it would be a fantastic dinner party. Now, before we talk about the Canales, I want to ask about an obsession that we both share, that is cookbooks. How well, many do you have? Well, <laughs> it's a little embarrassing to say, but I have at least 150 cookbooks and plus other you know, other genres of cooking. Um, I, I, I collect French cookbooks, like most women, collect shoes and handbags. You can never have enough. So it's it's a little bit of an obsession. I, I'm with you on the obsession. Oh, so good. I'm I, so glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> yes, no. I definitely have um, – I don't know if I have more than 150 French cookbooks, but I definitely am – like overall, how many cookbooks do you think you would have? Well over 200. It's a big, it's a big library. Yeah, it's a big library. Why do you love cookbooks so much? Uh, they, they just speak to me. I love reading the introduction of each cookbook. It's the first thing I do is read the introduction, just to hear the author's history and their love of food and their take on, you know, the dishes they're going to present is fascinating to me. And then the second thing I always do um, when I look at a cookbook is I flip back to the desserts. Because I think that you can tell a lot about a cookbook by the variety of desserts that they offer. You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about French food and the wonderful and fabulous people that make it. If you'd like to support the making of Fabulously Delicious, then there are many ways that you can do this. The first, possibly the most important, is to follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a review and a rating. A five-star one, well, that would be fabulous, especially if you're listening on Apple or Spotify. Share Fabulously Delicious around with your friends, family, co-workers or anyone that you know loves French food or just food in general. Are you a Patreon member? Well, if you can support Fabulously Delicious by becoming one, for as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, you will receive exclusive grade content just for you. You can find out more through the link in the show notes of this episode. 
So let's talk about all things Canelay. Depending on where you are in France, they can be called different things. So Limoges, which is near to me, there's a canole, which is mm. C-A-N-O-L-E. Mm-hmm. In Bordeaux, they used to call them the can canule. Now, my French teacher is going to listen to this and she's going to she's going to have a go at me for my French you pronunciation. I can tell. <laughs> So that one is C-A-N-A-U-L-E. And then there's the canoule, which is uh, C-A-N-A-U-L-E with the little thing over the top of it. I can't mm-hmm. remember what that Excellent. is. My, uh, yeah, the accent. Thank you very much. My my uh, editing husband is going to have a go at me for <laughs> saying that incorrectly. Or the canulet, which is uh, C-A-N-A-U-L-E-T. Oh, my gosh. Mm. But now we go by canoule. Is that how you pronounce it? Well, I pronounce it canelé with three syllables. But my, my my girlfriend who's from Paris, she says it's pronounced canelé with two syllables. So I think it depends on where you're from. And, and both, I think, are correct. <laughs> Look, we'll, we'll go with whatever comes out at the time and we'll just That's work right. with that. That'll be fine. So <laughs> what is a canelé for those of the listeners that don't know? So canelés are pretty little French cakes that originate from the city of Bordeaux in southwest France. They are known for their dark, crunchy, caramelized exterior and their soft, custardy interior flavored with vanilla and rum. They're absolutely delicious. Is it a really old dish, like, or is it a fairly new invention? Because it's hard to tell with some of these French dishes. And the canelé has actually been around uh, for over 300 years. Wow. Which, which is okay. Yeah. Well, the exact history of the canelé is a mystery. And like I said, the, ta- the, taste, the pastry dates back some 300 years, but the details are murky. One theory is that the canelés were invented in a convent where before the French Revolution, the nuns baked cakes made with egg yolks donated from the local winemakers in the region, uh, who the, the winemakers would use their egg whites to clarify the wines. Yeah, right. Yes, it's really fascinating using, uh, I, didn't, I didn't know that they used eggs in making wine. So, and actually what they do is they put the egg whites in the juice and the proteins in the egg whites mellow the tannins in the red wines, which gives it the smoother flavor. But this is amazing that they've come up with this this new dish just to mm-hmm. facilitate not wasting the egg yolk, which right. is fantastic. Exactly. And what was the other versions of the story as to the, the origins of the canelang? There's actually two other theories. So another theory is that the residents living near the banks of the Garonne River, which is the river that runs through the Bordeaux region, the residents collected the flour spilled from the loading docks, the loading areas on the docks, and were used to make these small cakes for the poor children, which is interesting. So they would take the flour that they would find and combine that with the egg yolks from the winemakers. And there you go. And the third, the third theory, which I think is my favorite, is that perhaps the canelay was made by mistake, like the tarte tan. Ah, yes. Maybe someone put a custard in the oven and forgot about it, which would explain its dark, crunchy exterior and the custardy interior. Yes. 
Ah, well, no, I like the first idea. I like the idea of using <laughs> the egg yolks. Let's go with that one. Okay, that sounds good. I mentioned it in my intro, but there's a special mole used to make them. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Cannelets are traditionally made in a copper mold. And cannelet actually means fluted in French. Uh, the molds are traditionally made of copper. And they're beautifully ridged, like little Roman columns. They're flat on the bottom with a little slight indent on top. Um, they're absolutely gorgeous. I think, in my opinion, they're almost too pretty to use. Um, and they're about the size of an egg. Imagine taking an egg and standing it up. So they're small. This traditional mold is made of copper, but I've also recently found silicon molds for a cantalay. Do you really think that's going to work the same as the copper ones? I'm not a fan of silicon. Um, I I I have not used. I have it, but I have not used it. Um, there's there's three ways, uh, three different um, ways to make the cantalays. You can use the copper. Or you can use the silicone, and then the third option is the carbon steel molds. What's that? I haven't seen those. Oh, they're fantastic. Uh, they're like a madeleine tray, but it's a cantalay mold. So you, so it's a, it's like a hybrid between the two. So you get the good heat conductivity of the metal, but you get the non-stick feature of like the silicone molds combined together. And they're just fantastic. They uh, are pretty uh, reasonably priced. You can pick one up for about $30. And they're easy to clean because they're nonstick. And you really get consistent uh, quality uh, and the outside crunch every time you bake with them. Fabulous. Okay, well, I'm getting one of those. Where's your favorite place in France to have a cannelé? Oh, gosh, any bakery. <laughs> <laughs> Anywhere. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't really have a specific bakery. Is there a time of the year to have one? You know, I have not heard that. You know, I don't know. I think they're, I think they're pretty popular year-round. In the U.S. Uh, and or even in just your local area and your travels around, have you found any good versions over there? It's they're really hard to find in the U.S. Um, if you live in the big cities and you go to the French bakeries, they typically will have cannelés. Um, but other than that, if you're out in the country or in the suburbs, you just really need to make your own. What's your favorite recipe to make a cannelé? Oh, absolutely. They are really simple to make. They're very similar to a, a crepe batter uh, with their ingredients. Um, they're just with, they're made with flour, milk, uh, butter, egg yolk, sugar, vanilla, and rum, of course. And um, I love the way they say rum, of course. Of course, of course. <laughs> That's right. And they're they're easy to make, but there are some tricks you have to master in order to have them turn out. Okay, and so have you got any tips for that to make a perfect one? What are the tricks that we have to master? Yes, um, the first trick is, besides using quality ingredients, is you have to let the batter rest. After you make the batter, it's key. You have to let the batter rest for at least 24 to 48 hours in the refrigerator. Because if you don't, what will happen, if you get impatient like I've done before and you bake them, try to bake them right away, they will puff out of the mold like a little muffin top, or uh, and that's just not what you want. 
and by resting and by resting the batter, it gives the bat the flour the chance to completely absorb the milk, and that helps prevent um, the cannolis from poofing out of the pan and holding their shape. It's a soft, uh, cakey inside. How do you get it to do that? Um, that's another trick that it's, it's critical. Um, when you make the batter and you put it in the fridge, you need to also butter your pan and put that in the freezer. And so, and you let the, that stay in the freezer for 24 hours as well. And so when you put the hot, um, excuse me, when you put the batter in the, f- the frozen cannelay molds and put that in a hot oven, that is what gives you the crunchy caramelized exterior and and that will keep also keep the custardy interior and how long do we bake them for you bake them at 450 degrees for 30 minutes and then you lower the temperature to 400 and then you bake them for another 30 minutes but here's another trick that you have to do when you take them out of the oven you must let them rest for at least 30 to 40 minutes because if you try to cut, them in, cut into them right away, they um, you will think that the, in, the interior is not cooked all the way. And by letting it rest, it will help that um, custardy interior set. And, and is it resting hot. in the mold? Uh, you Yes, yes. It has rum in it, as we just mentioned. So is it very alcoholic to taste? Like, is it like a rum baba? Like, it, does it, like, really taste of rum? You can definitely taste the rum, but it's really a hint of the flavor. It's definitely not overpowering. And you can, you actually have two options. You can use rum extract, uh, which is common and definitely cheaper than buying a whole bottle of rum. Or you can just use the red rum, which is right. Just use the rum. Because I've definitely found the the further you move out of Paris, the more alcoholic the rum barber gets. Um, Oh, I bet. So it's sort of like I I have to make sure I'm not driving when I get one from the local bakery here in Montmorillon. (laughs) What do you eat with a cannelé or drink with it? Like do you add cream or anything to it or do you just have it by itself? And is there a drink that goes really well with it? traditionally eaten plain by themselves and you can have them any time of the day breakfast lunch dinner snack uh, delicious with coffee delicious with tea or i love them after dinner with a glass of red wine it's just it's the perfect way to end the meal did your mother-in-laws cook them and if so who made the best ones they never made them and yeah, i imagine if they did i I think they would probably. I can't say. I can't pick one. <laughs> I'd be in trouble. They're both amazing cooks, and so if either one made them, they would be delicious. How did you come about making them and 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 falling in love with them, so to speak? Um, I, well, just from seeing them in the bakeries in Paris, and I remember one time when we came back from a trip, I was shocked to find them in the frozen section in Trader Joe's which was incredible. I mean, of all the places to find a cantaloupe would be Trader Joe's. Um, so, of course, I had to buy them. Um, but, so, and then I just started making them myself. Yeah. It's it's, it's really a, t- a taste. It's bringing a taste of France to your kitchen, wherever you live. 
I've seen your Instagram and I've seen them on your Instagram. In fact, I think this is how we came up with a topic uh, for them. And I'm wanting to know how many, like, did you get them first go around? Like, did they come out perfect first go around? Or have you made several batches to get the perfect ones? Because they looked pretty good, the ones I saw. Thank you so much. You know, I, I'm the type of cook where if I go through the trouble to make something and it doesn't turn out, I get really upset. Um, and so before I make a new dessert, I'll really do my research, um, you know, on the internet, I'll watch videos. And so I, I, I had, a, I already knew a couple of tricks to do before I made them. And so I've been really lucky. Um, and, and they've always turned out. And I think part of it is not only just learning these tips and tricks, but also that uh, carbon nonstick pan, I think is the answer. Yeah. Because the copper molds, although they're absolutely beautiful, they're, they can be a bit of a pain to use because you need food grade beeswax and you have to have the right ratio between the food grade beeswax and butter to line the copper. And then they're not always consistent in how they bake. So the non-steel, the non-stick carbon pan is really the way to go. Consistent results every time. Now, before we go and I ask you my last question, this isn't going to be it. This is another question. But I want to go back to you because we didn't really – we talked about your love of Paris. We talked about your family, et cetera, and we talked about your Instagram account. But one of the things that I've, I have I do like about you and um, is that, you know, you're not – your Instagram account is not your work, is it? You're not a, a, a professional foodie, so to speak, in that you're doing food tours or, or writing cookbooks or anything along those lines. You've just created this account because you love France and love French culture and French food, and that's resonated with people. Is that right? What's your day job, Catherine? Oh, my day job. Uh, we actually work in commercial real estate in the retail sector in Seattle. So it's very different from uh, from anything that I do on Instagram. And I just, I spend all my free time in the kitchen. If I'm not in the kitchen, I'm out in the garden gardening. Uh, I have a huge vegetable garden. And Instagram for me has really been a place where I can share my love of France and food and connect with like-minded people. And it's it's definitely um, a hobby, <laughs> definitely not my career. Well, it's a fabulous hobby and I'm sure you could turn it into a career, but I do love the fact that it's all about love and passion for something and I think that really resonates with people and that's mm. the reason why you have a lot of people following you and I think that uh, in the future you will get even more, I'm sure. Uh, but that's not what it's about. What it is about is not the followers, it's about the fabulous food that you make, oh, thank you. Uh, I'm sure, and the fabulous experiences that you have in France. So you'll come and have to come and join us here in Mont on one day. Oh, I would absolutely love to. That would be terrific. Finally, the question I ask everyone, what to you is the most fabulous thing about France? I think it's the tradition they have with food and how important it is to their culture from the way that they uh, select their produce and the quality ingredients to the way they have their long French family lunches on Sundays, um, just the whole culture around food and how important it is to their day-to-day life. Catherine Burns, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you for teaching us all about the Canelais. I'm sure we'll be 
eager to see what you're going to be cooking up a storm with in the future on your Instagram account. Uh, Rue.dauphine, is that right? Yes, Rue.dauphine. Dot Paris. Catherine, thanks for joining us on Fabulously Delicious today. Oh, thank you so much, Andrew, for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, merci beaucoup. Merci beaucoup. Merci beaucoup. Merci beaucoup. Merci beaucoup. Merci beaucoup. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.